The Logos, Ancient Near Eastern Cosmology, Ephesus, Stoic Philosophy, and what exactly gives the Bible authority anyway? That and more coming up on The Backdrop. Well, if that intro didn't scare you away, welcome to The Backdrop. You're in the right place. This is Curtis, and this is our new experiment to see if it might be useful to bring some of the things we found interesting in our preparation for the weekend worship gathering, the backdrop, if you will, for what we did and said together, and put them out each week as a podcast. This is an experiment, again, and so it might change from week to week. It might be a little longer, a little shorter. We might try a couple different ways of talking through the content, but we will see how it goes. This is going to tilt a bit nerdy, I'm sure. It's going to assume some familiarity with the Bible, but of course we still want to try to make it accessible. And then it's going to be less about application than about understanding what's going on in the passage itself and what's kind of uh, behind the passage itself. Please do let us know what you think, because as much as Meredith and I enjoy talking about this stuff, well, if no one else is finding it helpful, perhaps she and I should just stick to talking to each other about it. So with all that out of the way, welcome to the backdrop. Our passage this week was the first nine verses of the book of John. Why the first nine verses? Because of the very important reason that we had two different things we wanted to highlight in what's sometimes called the prologue to John, verses 1 to 18, and so we split it in half. These are the verses where John sets the stage for what is to come in the rest of his gospel, the themes, the meaning, the way we ought to interpret the stories and teaching that follow, all of that. And there are lots of ways that writing and telling a story have changed over the past 2,000 years or so. But one thing that has not changed is this. The first time you are introduced to a character, usually what happens and how they are talked about, are intended to tell you something fundamental about that character's, well, character, who they really are. And so it's important for us to pay attention to how John chooses to introduce Jesus. But before we get into this passage, since this is our first week in the book of John, it might be helpful for us to take the next 10 minutes or so to talk about some important pieces of context for the book as a whole. And we'll start with talking a little bit about who wrote this gospel and why. Traditionally, the church has identified the author as the disciple John, as in James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, one of Jesus's inner circle along with Peter. But there's actually no evidence whatsoever to require us to think that. The author doesn't identify him or herself anywhere, but there are a few references to a disciple whom Jesus loved, whose testimony we know is true. That's from John 21, 24, by the way. So we do know that either the author themselves was an eyewitness to these events, or they had gotten at least some of their information from someone who had been a close disciple of Jesus. The tradition that it was written by John comes at least in part from the early church historian Eusebius, who lived in the late 200s. In other words, a couple centuries after the book was written. He wrote in his History of the Early Church that this gospel was written by John the Elder, who lived in Ephesus in the late first century and who was not John the Disciple, as far as we know. The other evidence that it was written by John is that there is a close thematic connection between this book and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 
which are written by someone who calls themselves only the Elder. And to a lesser extent, there's a connection to the book of Revelation, which is, in fact, written by someone named John. Point being, when we refer to the author as John, it's maybe more of a convenient shorthand than it is an accurate identification of the actual author. And that's okay. Probably the main reason this book is called John is that there have been stretches of church history that heavily emphasize making sure that the Bible has authority, that we can trust it. And people sometimes have thought that the best way to do that is if every single book is written by or closely linked to one of the closest disciples of Jesus or the Apostle Paul. He counts too. Being closely linked to Jesus in that way is what assures us of its authority, which is why traditionally every single book in the New Testament is linked directly to one of the closest, earliest disciples. Either Paul, and that actually includes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Peter, and that includes the Gospel Mark, John, James, or Matthew. So basically, Matthew is almost an outlier because while he was one of the 12 disciples, it's the only book that is not linked to Paul, one of Jesus' two closest disciples, or Jesus' brother, James. But this is the point I want to make. The authority of the Bible does not rest on the disciples. The authority of the Bible rests on the Holy Spirit having inspired its authors to take the eyewitness accounts and then interpret their meaning in a theologically accurate way, in a way that is trustworthy and conveying to us true things about God, about Jesus, about ourselves, the world. Eyewitness accounts and experiences matter, of course, but only insofar as they are interpreted accurately. Otherwise, they are at best useless and at worst deeply misleading, even untrue. So the authority lies in the Spirit's inspiration of an interpretation. And then in the Holy Spirit's having inspired the church to see that these interpretations were accurate, that they were trustworthy and true. And this brings us back to the book of John. Because John is trying to not give us a perfect chronological account of just the facts. He is primarily focused on us understanding, seeing the truth about Jesus. Marianne Mai Thompson writes in her commentary on John, and we will post a list of all the resources that we reference in these backdrop podcasts. She writes that insight into Jesus's identity cannot be gained for John entirely by what the eyes can see, but neither can that insight dispense with what the eyes can see. You need the facts But only proper theological interpretation brings those facts to life. Later, she writes, For John, historical and theological significance converge. They are mutually interpretive, and they are impossible to disentangle. In other words, a question like, Well, did that really happen exactly that way and in that chronological order? is to fundamentally miss the point here. John's goal is not for us to know facts about Jesus, but to understand what the facts mean. And just like when we tell a story, sometimes we might move things around, leave things out, embellish other things, not because we're being deceptive, but because we want to highlight certain things that matter about the story. In some ways, and in certain contexts, telling the story straight 
is actually less true in a sense, because it causes you to miss what actually matters about the story in the first place. So did Jesus's best friend write this book? Probably not. Can we trust it? Absolutely. There's evidence that this gospel was first circulated and identified as a trustworthy account of who Jesus was in and around Ephesus in the late first century. Marianne Mai Thompson points out that there are themes and ways of speaking in the gospel that seem to indicate that this gospel was written with an eye towards making the story of Jesus accessible to Gentiles and to speak to certain features of religious life in the region known in the Roman world as Asia, that is, Western modern-day Turkey along the Mediterranean coast where Ephesus was. There are also certain movements in the 2nd and 3rd century churches in and around Ephesus that align closely with the theology that you find in John. All in all, it seems like a safe bet that John was written to the area around Ephesus around the late 1st century. And it does help us to interpret some of the things that happened in the book of John as well, if we take that as our starting point. Ephesus was the largest and one of the richest and most prominent cities in the province of Asia, a region that had seen its fortunes greatly brighten with the rise to power of Augustus and the emperors who followed him through that first century. There was a flow of gifts and money for building projects and trade that swept through the area that were a sharp reversal from what had been the case in the previous century. Ephesus, in particular, was booming. It was located on the coast had ships regularly sailing into its harbor. It was on a major north-south highway running along the coast of Turkey, what is now Turkey. And it was the beginning, the starting point of two of the main highways leading east towards Persia, India, and China. Because of this and other factors, it was actually made the capital of the province by Augustus in the early uh, first century AD. Ephesus, in many ways, had it made. And it was also, and I reference this on Sunday, it was also a center of religious activity. The cult of worshiping the emperor was common in that region. It had one of three temples to the emperor in Asia, which might explain why John so heavily emphasizes Jesus's divinity and why John talks relatively a lot about how Jesus interacted with the Roman government. Historians call different types of religious activity in the ancient world cults. That's just the word that they use. It's not really cult in the negative sense that we use it today. And the most prominent cult in Ephesus was the cult to Artemis, the goddess Artemis. And Paul actually confronts this cult in Acts 19. You might be familiar with that story. There were also numerous mystery cults which was a word that was used to describe uh, religious activity that dealt more in the realm of what we might call magic than it would worshiping gods and goddesses. Although really there isn't always a very clear distinction in the ancient world between worshiping gods and goddesses and things we might call magic. The lines are kind of blurry, but uh, scholars and historians do tend to separate them out a little bit. The historian Everett Ferguson writes that the root idea in magic was that by employing the proper means, the gods or demons could be forced to do something for you. And so people would use formulaic words and threats and promises and praise and rituals and whatever else they might think uh, that might work to get what they want. Ephesus was so much a center of this activity that, that Ferguson writes, 
formulas used in magic were known as Ephesia Grammatica, or Ephesian letters. And this was not just a Gentile practice either, but was common among Jewish groups in the area as well. These formulas were mostly to do with the mundane, things like protection from bad fortune or thieves or harm, things like curses on others who have done you wrong, uh, things like healing or influencing the weather or seeing the future or erotic charms in the love potion number nine variety. And so, given all this, we see John emphasizing Jesus' divinity and power, and then also emphasizing that Jesus' light is available to all people. Now, for us, those are nice things, right? We like inclusion around here. We like Jesus being God, all that. But those emphases take on a good deal more force when we understand the context to which John is writing. Now, with that context briefly covered, and of course, there is uh, dozens and dozens of pages more information that you could read about this, probably dozens and dozens of books, really. Um, Let's go through the passage a little bit and highlight a few of the other interesting background pieces um, here. So John starts with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and this life was the light of all human beings. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. John is, of course, referencing Genesis 1 here, where God creates all that there is. He is identifying that Jesus is, in fact, God, that he is preexistent. He is the creator of all that is, and therefore has power over all that is. And here's why he's doing that. Theologians sometimes use the word heresy to describe the mistaken theologies that lead to mistaken practice and how people live out those mistaken theologies. And maybe the preeminent heresies of the earliest church were to either believe that Jesus was not actually God, but just seemed to be God, or that Jesus was not actually human, but just seemed to be human. Here, John is addressing that first one, saying, no, Jesus did not seem to be God. He actually was God. And he actually addresses the second just a few verses later. It matters to John that Jesus be God. To those who are used to worshiping the emperor, he is saying, no, Jesus is the all-powerful ruler of the world who brings peace, not Caesar. To those putting their trust in magic, he is saying, no, Jesus is the source of true power, and he offers it to all of us, not just a select few. By referencing Genesis, John is also responding to the mystery cult beliefs in a slightly different way. Theologians use the word cosmology to describe the stories that people tell about how the world, the universe, and people came to be. And the Genesis creation story, the cosmology of the Old Testament, if you will, was one of many such stories in the ancient world. And it is similar to the other stories told by other people groups in a number of ways. The Egyptians or the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all had their own stories about how the world came to be. But it's also different from those stories in a number of ways. 
A scholar named John Walton has written a number of books about the ways that knowing the ancient Near Eastern context for some of the Old Testament stories, especially those that we find in Genesis, knowing those, that ancient context helps give us a better understanding of what the stories in the Old Testament are trying to say. Because by seeing the other stories, we can identify how the Old Testament borrows from them, but also tweaks them, corrects them, critiques them. Now, there are a ton of different details to all this, but for our purposes, one of the key things to know is that in the ancient world, these cosmology stories were not concerned so much with how was the world made, but why? What was the function that the earth and humanity are supposed to play? It's actually a much later Greek philosophical question to assume there was a time when the material universe didn't exist, and that the question that really needs answering is, how did something come from nothing? Which is a question that a lot uh, that we assume today as well in our culture. But in the ancient Near Eastern context, the assumption was that the material world was chaotic and purposeless, disordered, or, as Genesis puts it, formless and void. And so the question that really needs answering is, how were things put into order and for what purpose? Walton puts it like this, that in the ancient Near East, the concern was the function, not the material of creation. That something comes into existence, not when its material appears, but when it is separated out as a distinct entity, given a function and given a name, that's when something is truly created. Which is, of course, exactly what God does in Genesis 1. Separating out light and water and land, naming them, and then giving them functions. But here's the thing. In ancient Near Eastern thought, that pre-existing disordered chaos is constantly knocking at the door, trying to tear down the order that has been created, which, as I tried to point out this past Sunday, is maybe not such a foreign feeling for a lot of us today who feel the forces of chaos and unpredictability at our doors as well. So who or what is holding back the forces of chaos? To most of the ancient world, the answer is humans, by doing the right work, worship, rituals, and sacrifices to support the gods and keep them happy. And then the gods will do our bidding by keeping the forces of chaos at bay. But John echoes Genesis in saying, no, God, through God's word, created all that is. And the darkness of chaos cannot overcome God's light. God, through Jesus, is the maker and sustainer of life, which is offered to all and is sustained through God's power, irrespective of human actions. This is a sharp contrast that Genesis and John are drawing with the surrounding cultures, one that would have marked Jewish and Christian belief, that would have marked our God as fundamentally different than those in the surrounding culture. Again, there is way more that could be said here, but we'll save that for when we preach on Genesis, maybe. One final piece of background to what's going on here has to do with how much or how little John is referencing Greek philosophy instead of or in addition to the Old Testament. And this centers around the word, word. It's logos in the Greek. And the word logos, 
was a really important one in a particular school of Greek philosophy, which was called Stoicism. As Ferguson writes, in Stoic philosophy, the logos is an impersonal principle of balance, stability, and order. The logos became another word in the Stoic system for God, since it maintains order. But impersonal is important there because this order, this logos, is not located in or coming from some divine being, but is rather present in all things. Kind of a pantheism, or more accurately, panentheism. Therefore, for the Stoics, the virtuous or good person lives according to the logos, sometimes identified as reason that lives inside of them. Stoics also draw a sharp line between the material world and the world of the spirit. Logos, reason, virtue, order, they all come from the realm of the spirit, and the material world of the flesh is the source of the bad things that oppose order and virtue and goodness. So, scholars have debated to what extent John is using the word logos as a reference to or critique of Stoic philosophy. Some think this is his primary aim in using the word logos. Thompson thinks that it's far more likely that John talks about God's word as a reference to the words God speaks in Genesis 1 that bring creation into being. And among her reasons are that John is actually written in pretty poor Greek, which would indicate either that the author is writing in a second language or that they were fairly uneducated. In either case, they aren't likely to be steeped in Greek philosophical tradition and thought, as opposed to someone like Paul, who probably was, for example. I think I tend to agree that primarily John is interested in the echoes of Genesis, not Stoicism. But it is interesting to me how much what John says about Jesus could have been a response to and a correction of Stoic ideas as well. Yes, John would say the Logos brings order and is available to us, just like the Stoics, and that we ought to live according to it. But it's not some impersonal, purely spiritual force. Instead, the Logos is the person of Jesus, who is actually the God of Israel and of the whole world, and who, far from rejecting the inferior evil material world, actually became flesh so as to show us how God's grace enables us to live according to the Logos in this material world. That jumping ahead in John, being born of the Spirit and living by the Spirit, do not mean rejecting the flesh or the material world. They mean transforming and perfecting the material world. So I do wonder if John had half an eye on some of the Greek philosophical ideas that were in the air around him, in addition to what he's trying to say about Genesis 1 when he writes about the word. Okay, so there is, of course, much more that we could talk about from this passage, but that is probably enough for this first go around of the backdrop. Uh, Next week, Meredith will be preaching and she will record this supplemental podcast as well. And she assures me it will be much shorter than my ramblings here. Um, In any event, I would love, of course, to hear what any of you think about this podcast experiment or about any of the things I said in it, other ways this background stuff might impact our understanding of John. So if you have any thoughts on that, um, send us an email. Our email is at is PomonaValleyChurch at gmail.com. 
And in other news, we will be meeting again at our house this Sunday at 4.30 p.m. Again, Meredith is preaching that. And we will be going after that just a block or so over to our neighborhood park for a picnic at 5.30. All the information on that will be on our Instagram at Pomona Valley Church. And we hope to see you at either or both of those on Sunday. Until then, bye.